I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the fifth book of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or fifth, fifth book of the New Testament, I should say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And we continue our series, Devoted, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. And who here this morning knows what chapter we're in now? What chapter are we in? Chapter 6. And uh, before we get right into chapter 6, we're going to have just the briefest of prayers and we're going to launch in. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would open our hearts. Give us a blessing today, an individual blessing, as Dr. Mahanu prayed. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 6. And notice with me the very last verse of Acts chapter 5. This is where we left off last week, Acts chapter 5. We're continuing our chapter by chapter journey through the book of Acts. Jared and Daniel and I got together just this week and we put together the rest of the preaching roster through the book of Acts. It's going to take us all the way to about January 31st. So we're continuing really just here in the first beginning of our journey. And in many ways, Acts chapter 6 is a bit of a growing pains chapter. It's a chapter that shows and reveals the humanity of the book of Acts. We sometimes forget that we're dealing with real people that lived in real time and had real prejudices and suspicions and frustrations and difficulties, and we're going to encounter that head on today. But the very last verse of Acts chapter 5 says this, and daily, how often everyone? Daily, every day in the temple and in every house, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so when we leave Acts chapter 5, what we end up with, Luke is, as we discuss, we're just going to do it, just the briefest of review from what we talked about last week. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he is very clearly and very purposefully describing the emergence of a new covenant community. There's a transition Israel in the Old Testament, the descendants of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, we've now transitioned into the New Testament, this new covenant community. community. And how many disciples were there that Jesus had chosen? Were there eight? Were there ten? How many disciples did Jesus have? He had 12. But one of them, Judas, has actually gone astray. And by this point, Judas is dead in the story. And so the, the New Testament church had a sense that they needed another one, there, that 11 wouldn't cut it. There had to be 12, because they understood, as Luke understands, that they are here in a very real sense building a new covenant community. The new Israel is emerging in the book of Acts. And so Luke is purposefully and skillfully describing the emergence of a new covenant community. In Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, we encounter this phrase. We, we mentioned this last week. We're just going to revisit it briefly here. Acts chapter 2, Luke closes with these important words. He says, now all who believed were together and had all things in, what's the word there? All things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among us all as anyone had need. It says, now the multitude of those, this is, this, those, this is Luke's ending now of Acts chapter 4, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that anything that he possessed was his own, but here again he gives that same phrase, they had all things in common. Now, of course, the root word of community is the word common, and we discussed this a little bit last week, that different kinds of communities, there can be a group of people that are into rugby, and so they have a community built around the activity of rugby. There can be a group of people that are into bird watching, or fishing, or car racing, or whatever it might be, and communities often develop around shared interests or activities. In the case of the church, the early church community, they had all things in common. 
They were, they were united in their basic belief about God, about His goodness, and about what He was doing in the world. But as we're going to see in a strange way, even though, according to Luke, they had all things in common, they were actually a very diverse group. We're a diverse group here this morning, aren't we? Right, I look out here, I see different colors, different shapes, different sizes, different genders, different ages. We here today are a diverse community. The early church was also a diverse community, and as we're going to discover, that diversity actually can create tension and difficulty. How will we deal with the tension and difficulty that comes about as a result of diversity? We're going to see how the early church dealt with it. Preaching, healing, and a generous community uh, are an almost irresistible combination. I go to Acts chapter 6. Look at Acts chapter 6. We're there now. And notice that the very first verse here of Acts chapter 6 says this. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was what? What does your Bible say? Was multiplying, increasing. So the church is not diminishing in its influence. The church is not diminishing in its growth. At this point, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the church is growing. And so Luke wants you to know that. In those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying, now watch what happens. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. What does that slide say up there? I want us all to read that together. Let's read that together. It says, new growth creates new problems. That's exactly what we see. In Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to the, to the first real human passage in the book of Acts. Of course, the whole book of Acts is very human. But, but Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 3, the healing of a, a man who had been uh, paralyzed for a number of years. Acts chapter 4, more miracles. Acts chapter 5, still more miracles. It's almost like you're reading something that's not very human. It's, it's a little too divine. It's a little too miraculous. It doesn't feel like our day-to-day lives. But Acts chapter 6 verse 1 feels a lot like our day-to-day lives. It feels a lot like church. There was a complaint. There was a dispute. There was a controversy. Does that feel a little bit like church today? Sometimes it does, doesn't it? So new growth creates new problems, which makes new systems and new leaders essential. This is is what we're going to discover today. That what we see in Acts chapter 6 is that a very human problem, a very natural problem arises. As institutions grow, as communities grow, there are opportunities for increasing frictions, increasing misunderstandings, and just increasing problems. Well, what we're going to see is how the early church dealt with this new friction, this new difficulty. And in this particular instance, it was a seeming inequity or an inequality in the way that certain of the widows were being treated. Now, we need to give a little bit of historical context here. Great. Looks like it's sort of working. When the church began, basically, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. He starts preaching. He's preaching the resurrection of Jesus, and 3,000 people are added that day. As the number of people continue to increase, 3,000 here, several hundred here, and still a little bit later, there'll be another 3,000, then another 5,000. As the church is increasing, the church never really anticipated the early church that they were going to have to implement anything like a welfare system. Right? They were just a group of people that followed this Jesus guy. He had taught a bunch of things. They believed what he had taught. And so they said, hey, we're, we're going to tell others what Jesus taught us. We believe that Jesus was God's Messiah, that he was killed, and that he rose again. So it basically starts off as a teaching ministry, a preaching ministry. But as their numbers increase, whole different swaths and kinds of people come into their community. And as we discussed last week, 
many of those people that were being brought into the early church community were not from the upper echelons of society. They were the common people. They were the simple people. They were the poor people. Now, with common, simple, and poor people come a number of issues, and and how do these people get fed, and where do they sleep, and how do we take care of the burial of the dead, and we talked about that a little last week. Well, this is exactly what's taking place here. The the disciples, as it were, as they're preaching, on the fly, basically have to come up with with an ad hoc welfare system. As people were joining the New Covenant Church, the, the, the New Testament Church, what was happening was... In some instances, those individuals that joined the church were cut off from their former communities. And so they could have been cut off from their former Jewish community, or even, as we're going to see, cut off from their former Gentile community, which basically made the people feel like their real family was their church family. Many of us feel that way here today. Uh, I have two brothers and two sisters, all of whom I love dearly, a mother and a father who are just wonderful people that I care for and love very much. But in a very real sense, I feel a closeness and an intimacy with my church family that I don't even share with my, with my blood family. Um, the main reason for that in my case is that I'm the only believer of my brothers and sisters. My, all my brothers and sisters are wonderful people, they're great people, they're awesome people, but there's just a basic commonality that I don't share with my own brothers and sisters. And so that's why when we come into the church, we use language. I'll be like, Brother Leon, great to see you. We're communicating here that there's a, more than just a friendly connection, more than just a community connection, there's a familial connection. And as people were being, in some instances, cut off from their actual blood relatives, they were finding their family in the church. Well, now as they find their family in the church, there were actual needs that would have normally been fulfilled by their families, such as places to live and food to eat and and basic medical care or even burials. Well, now the church is in a situation because many of these new converts have been cut off from their former support systems and their former families. The church has to provide for something that they never thought they were going to have to. And so sort of on the fly, they kind of put together a distribution where people are pooling their resources. They're trying to help out those among them that don't have the the necessary resources, and in the midst of this, and this is the key, a supposed or an imagined inequality has emerged. And this particular inequality, take a look at it in verse 1, is between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Now, just a little bit of background here. We think very incorrectly too often about the Jews as a mono, sort of a monolithic entity, right? They're the Jews, Well, not at all. In fact, first century Judaism was a very diverse group of people. And the main division that took place, the main division in those early Jewish communities were what were called the Hellenistic Jews and the Palestinian Jews. The Palestinian Jews were the Jews that, that also called the Hebrews, the Jews that stayed in and around Jerusalem. They hadn't left. They hadn't gone to the various places uh, that the Jews have been dispersed over the last several hundred years. But those Jews that had gone away had become increasingly accustomed to other cultures, other situations. They'd even begun to speak other languages, most of them Greek. For many of these Hellenistic Jews, they were called the Hellenists, which just means the Greek Jews, because their first language was Greek, right? Many of them couldn't even speak Aramaic, where the local Palestinian Jews, they spoke almost exclusively Aramaic, and many of them could read and write Hebrew. So... If you know anything about the way that cultures work, here in, in Australia, you're more of a, you know, uh, sort of a homogenous, linguistically homogenous group. Basically, everybody speaks English, there, but there certainly are immigrant communities. But there are other countries and places, like you go visit Europe, and it's not at all uncommon for a person to speak three or four languages or more. 
because there's an immediate wall that goes up, an immediate bar barrier that goes up. If you can't speak somebody's language, you never really know a culture until you know that language. And here, at the most basic level, the, lace, the, ba the level of language, there's a, there's a distance, there's a wall between the Greek-speaking Jews and the, the Aramaic-speaking Jews, the Hellenists. And that prejudice, and this is a key point that we're going to bring out today, that prejudice, that suspicion, that distrust did not immediately disappear when people came out of the waters of baptism. I want to say that again. That distrust, that suspicion did not immediately disappear when people came out of the waters of baptism. They were humans before they went into the waters of baptism, and they were human beings after they came out. They had prejudices before, and they had now prejudices afterward. They longed to put away those prejudices. They wanted to put away that distrust. They wanted to put away that suspicion. But as we're going to learn, the book of Acts depicts a church that is a very real church, a very human church, a church very much like our own Kingscliff community here. Are there sometimes misunderstandings, miscommunications, and issues that rise in our own local church? I can tell you as somebody who's been a pastor here just for now for about four months. Yes, it happens. It happens in our own community of faith, and we should be greatly encouraged that the early church does not hide. It doesn't seek to sort of, you know, pretend as though everything was fine, hide it behind a veil of piety and, and uh, you know, uh, religiosity. No, 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 no. Luke wants us to know that the church was growing. They were teaching the resurrection of Jesus. They were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. The church is growing, and in the midst of that growth, there were new problems, new difficulties that required new solutions. On the spot, we've got to come up with a solution for a problem that they themselves hadn't even anticipated. There is a complaint among the Hellenists saying, you are being more generous, more kind to the Aramaic speaking, to the Hebrew Jews. And so this complaint takes place. Now look at verse 2. Actually, I think I've got a couple more slides here just to set the stage. No, I don't. Look at verse 2. It says, Then the twelve, this is the twelve apostles, and that's a key. I want to just point out again here that it wasn't the eleven, it wasn't the eight. This is the new Israel. This is God's new kingdom on earth, raising up the truth of the goodness of God. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not best that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out, look at verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to, the, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, there's several things I like about verses 3 and 4. The first thing is I want you to notice the basic trust that the disciples have in their community. The basic what word did I say, everyone? Trust. They, they, they don't say, hey, we're going to micromanage this. If anything's going to be done right around here, it's going to be done by us. We're the disciples of Jesus. We're the ones that walk with Jesus for, year, for, you know, for three years. If anything's going to be done, it's going to be done right. It's going to be well. It's going to be done by us. And there are pastors that come into churches and come into communities and come into situations that insist on basically micromanaging every detail, every decision, every aspect. But you don't see that in the early church. The early church basically says to their community, hey, you guys decide among yourselves. You select from among yourselves seven respected, intelligent, wise, spirit-filled people, and we have confidence that you'll make the right decision. So notice there's not only the element of trust, there's the element of delegation. The element of what, everyone? Delegation. Now, this is not to suggest in any way, and Luke certainly isn't suggesting 
that this is somehow a lower ministry. We're above service. We're above this common ministry. We're only willing to do the higher form. No, 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 no. What Luke is saying is, is that as the disciples, they were uniquely qualified, having spent three years with Jesus, they were uniquely qualified to be out on the front lines preaching. If there were other people who hadn't been with Jesus for those three years, and there were other ministry jobs, other tasks that could be done, hey, you guys do that. We'll continue to pray, we'll continue to preach, we'll continue to do this aspect of ministry, but we trust you. We are delegating to you to help this go forward. Again, it was happening on the fly. There was no handbook how to create a church. There was no handbook how to create a New Testament community. They were figuring it out as they went along, and as they're going along, these sort of controversies, misunderstandings, and miscommunications erupt. I've had people say to me in this very church, Oh, that there's so many people in the church, I don't recognize everybody anymore. There was a time where I knew everybody in the church, and I could just come in, and I could say hi to that person. I'd look over there, and I'd know that person, and now I come in, and I don't know where I fit in. Walt, I'll tell you exactly where you fit in. You fit in in ministry, and you should absolutely praise the Lord Jesus that you look around and see people you don't recognize. That's a good sign. That means there are visitors in your church. You wouldn't want to have a situation where every single Sabbath you knew every single person. That means nobody's coming to visit your church except you. Right? And if, if that's, there are lots of people, frankly, and I don't, uh, this is not this church, but there are lots of people that that's what they want out of a church. They just want a little social club, a little social community. They can get together and they can sort of spend time. Fine, if that's what you're looking for, I'm sure there are churches that would meet your needs that way. But they wouldn't be anything like the church of Acts. The church of Acts was a dynamic, growing, and sometimes difficult community where misunderstandings, miscommunications arose. And so uh, the apostles say, hey, look, we're going to keep praying, we're going to keep preaching the word, but we're going to appoint you guys over this business. Now look at verse 5. I love verse 5. It says, and this saying pleased the whole multitude. You know that it's a good decision when everybody's happy, right? You know it's a good decision when the whole multitude is pleased. There's the old saying, you can please all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time. But you can't please all the people all the time. Well, apparently they did. They made a decision here that was, that was broad-minded enough, it was big enough, it was systematic enough, it was, it was organized enough that everybody said, yeah, that's fair. That will ensure basic equality. The Hebrews will be treated in a certain way. The Greeks will be treated in a similar way. We'll have checks and balances Acts chapter 6 verse 5 says, that saying pleased everyone. And then it gives us the name of those that were cho- names of those that were chosen. And they chose Stephen. He's going to become very important in chapters 7 and 8. It says they chose, or especially 7. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Notice this is now the second time in Acts chapter 6 that we're told that the church is a praying church. Right? We mentioned that last week. One of the elements of the early church was that they were a praying community. Can the people of God say amen to that? We are the true church. We are God's church to the degree that we are a praying community. To the degree that we are not a praying community, we're just a Sabbath club that meets to talk about things that are important only to us on Sabbath morning in this building. But to the degree that we pray, to the degree that we pour ourselves into the ministry of prayer, we are God's church on earth. Verse 7, and the word of God spread. Notice what happens. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests 
were obedient to the faith. Now, this is a remarkable verse. In fact, verse 7 is almost unbelievable. When Scripture speaks about the priests here, it's speaking about many of those people who had been personally responsible in the death of Jesus himself. Personally responsible. Personally culpable. Some of those very same Pharisees and Sadducees that had actually resisted Jesus and mocked Jesus and plotted the death of Jesus and even been participatory in the crucifixion of Jesus, it says even these people, because of the strength of the community, because of the outpouring of the Spirit, because of the generosity and the magnanimity of this community, those people came to believe. And I want to tell you something here today. When the Holy Spirit sets a church on fire, there are no limits to the kinds of people that can become converted. This last week, I, I put a, a post up on my Facebook page, and uh, I, it was an interview that was done with the lead singer of the band U2. His name is Bono. And in this particular interview, they're interviewing Bono about his faith and about his trust in Jesus. He's a, he's a, a self-professed follower of Jesus. He's a self-professed believer in Scripture. And they're interviewing him, and over the course of this sort of short interview, it's only about three minutes long, he basically says, yes, I believe in Jesus. And the interviewer is kind of sticking it to him a little bit. Like, you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And Bono says, absolutely. I believe in miracles. Well, I have no problem with miracles. He says, I am a miracle. I'm surrounded by miracles. And he says, wait a minute, that means you think Jesus is divine. He says, I believe Jesus is divine. The interviewer says, to whom do you direct your prayers? And he says, I direct my prayers to God in the name of Jesus. And he says, well, wait a minute, if you believe all that, the interview, you can tell, is becoming increasingly agitated. I mean, this guy's a rock star. What's this about? This is, this is hardly sex, drug, and rock and roll. We're talking about the resurrection. We're talking about the scriptures. We're talking about, he talks about gathering his family on their large bed, he and his wife, and praying with his children. And at the end, the, the interviewer says, that means then that you think that God has made promises that he will fulfill. Future promises that he will yet fulfill. And Bono says two words, I do. I do. Now, the remarkable thing, there's two remarkable things. The first remarkable thing is that a rock star would talk like that. It's not every day that a rock star is saying, I believe in the promises of God, etc., etc. This is hardly an endorsement of Bono's particular religion, or I am thrilled with his faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's great. But here's the remarkable thing. I put this up on my Facebook page, and people immediately begin to say, whoa, what's going on here? Not everybody, by the way, a small percentage, probably about 10 or 15%. How can a Seventh-day Adventist pastor be putting an interview with a rock star on his Facebook page? What what does the world come to? Right? And I tell you, it just shows the shallowness of our own belief that God can win anybody. If God can win a Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, if God can win a Peter the denier and Saul the persecutor, why can't God win a Bono the rock star? Why couldn't he do it? We just read a verse here that says that many of those people that were directly responsible for the death of Jesus, the priests, many of those people became believers and followers and participants in the New Covenant community. Do you think God could do that even for a rock star? I tell you, if you don't, you're not serving the God of the book of Acts. The God of the book of Acts is big, he's large, he's on the move. He opens up in verse 1 and says the church was increasing, it was multiplying, it was growing. And here in verse 7, he says they had a little hiccup. They had a misunderstanding. Some old prejudices reared their head. Some old misunderstandings reared their head. They sorted it out. They put systems in place, and they were marching right along. The word continued to multiply, it says there in verse 7. Now, several things I want to point out here. Look at the screen here. One of the great things that we encounter about the book of Acts, especially chapter 6, is that everybody is called to ministry, but not everybody's called to the same ministry. This will become a recurrent theme in the New Testament, and especially in the writings of Paul. Paul will use a very interesting metaphor to describe the church. 
he uses the metaphor of the body, right? The physical human body, which is diverse and yet unified. Let's unpack that. It says here, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of, what's that next word? There are varieties of service. Were the disciples who were teaching and preaching and praying, was that an act of service to the community? What about those that were feeding and those that were looking after the needs of the widows and the others that had needs? Is that a service? Of course, that's what he's saying. There's a variety of gifts. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one of those activities. Now, here's where he goes to the metaphor of the body. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into how many bodies? One body. Now, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. In fact, if you think that this is a little bit of a hiccup in Acts chapter 6 with this, this increasing transition from just the, the Palestinian Jews to the Hellenistic Jews, this is only a mild foreshadow of what's to come when the gospel actually starts to go to the Gentile communities and blah, 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 you're going to have a shake-up to end all shake-ups. This is going to be an upside-down turning psychologically, socially, theologically. I mean, this is going to be a radical upside-down. So if the church is wrestling with, hey, you're not the same kind of Jew I am. You're not the same kind of Adventist I am. You're a liberal Adventist. Oh, you're a conservative Adventist. Oh, you're a whatever Adventist. Well, what's going to happen when even not, what's going to happen when the bonos of the world start coming to church? Well, that's going to be a real hiccup. Right? And so if they're experiencing a little bit of difficulty, a little bit of trial here, a little bit of controversy here, what happens when the floodgates open to the Gentiles? And that's what we're going to get to a little bit later, especially in chapters 10 and beyond. And so it says, Jews are Greeks, slave or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, and here Paul obviously becomes a little funny, he's clearly writing with humorous intent. Very logical, very systematic, but quite funny. If the foot said, hey, I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, he says, would that make it any less a part of the body? Can you imagine the foot speaking and saying, I'm not a hand, therefore I'm not part of the body? If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body, he says, were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged. I want you to say those two words with me. As it is, God arranged. This isn't the device of man. It's not the cleverness of man. It's not the intelligence of man. This is in God's design. There's a variety of ministries. There's a variety of out, uh, activities. There's a variety of gifts. There's a variety of people. As I look out here today, again, I see diversity. I see a diverse community. God arranged the members in the body. Your head is here, your arms are here, your trunk is here, your legs are here, your feet are there, your toes are there. Each one of them, as he chose, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet how many bodies? There is one body. So our, the takeaway from here, and clearly the point that Paul is making, is that the church is to be diverse and yet unified. Can somebody say amen to that? And I tell you, this is something that, and I want to just speak openly here, this is something that Seventh-day Adventists really tend to wrestle with on certain issues. We shouldn't, because we are a global church, right? There are some roughly 20 million Seventh-day Adventists in the world, and they are dispersed, you know, all over the world. South America, Central America, North America, Australia, Asia, Africa. I mean, we are a cosmopolitan, diverse community. So you would think that we would grasp the idea of unity and diversity, 
But while we are able to some degree to embrace um, linguistic or cultural or ethnic diversity, even though some of us even wrestle with that, we sometimes wrestle with people not seeing it exactly the way that we see discussion A or issue B or theological point C. We're going to talk about that. The church is to be diverse and yet united. I love this, love this, love this from the book Acts of the Apostles. It says, summoning a meeting of the believers, the apostles were led by the Holy Spirit to outline a plan for, what does that say? The better organization of all the working forces of the church. So the idea here is that the church has to be organized. There has to be a purpose. There had to be systems put in place. Just as the disciples said, okay, uh, choose seven. Choose seven and we'll appoint them to this particular work. We'll be doing this work, they'll be doing that work. There's organization here. There's, there's structure here. There's trust here. There's delegation here. These deacons, and this is the first time that we're really introduced to the deacons. These seven individuals are called the seven deacons. And here's a fascinating thing. We have deacons here today. The word deacon in the Greek simply means servant. That's all it means. It wasn't an office. It wasn't some, you know, proud position or, or office that you occupied that made you special over. No, it just meant servant. So these deacons or servants gave careful consideration to individual needs as well as to the general financial interests of the church. And by their prudent management and their godly example, they were, important, they were an important aid to their fellow officers in binding together the various interests of the church into a united whole. This is why we have... People like Darren and Kevin, who are the treasurers of this church. It's why we have people that go in the back and count money, because everything that's done to advance the cause of Christ is a ministry, both to the church and to the community. Can somebody say amen to that? It's beautiful. Now, I want to introduce you to something kind of interesting here. We got a few uh, uh, dear uh, saints in our congregation here who prefer the King James Version of the Bible. And I'd say it's a good version. It's a great version. I read it for years. And there's nothing wrong with preferring the King James Version, and there's nothing wrong with thinking it's a great version. It is a great version. But there are some people that take it just the next step further. They say, if it's not the King James Version, it's not good enough, right? It's, it's not only a good version, it's the only good version. Maybe you've had somebody say that. Maybe you yourself feel that way. Well, first of all, that's a very narrow way because there are lots of great translations, lots of great uh, ways to render those various passages in both the Old and the New Testaments. But I want to share with you something a little funny. I'm going to take a little jab here at the King James Version, where there's the placement of a comma that completely changes, for the worse, the meaning of a very important passage. It's Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is writing about the outpouring of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit for the upbuilding of the church. And he says, I'm reading King James Version now, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You say, hey, what's the problem with that? Well, the main problem, I'll just highlight it for you right there. And if you don't believe me, you can look in your own King James Version if you're a King James reader. And by the way, I just want to emphasize again, it's a great version, fantastic version, but it's not the only good version. You'll notice that comma right there. Now, let me just tell you something about commas. The commas and the punctuation in the English translations of the Bible were added much later, right? The, the, the Hebrew and the Greek have a very different kind of punctuation, much less punctuation than English, in fact. And so the translators not only wrote out the words and the phrases that they thought were right, they put the punctuation in that they thought was right as well. Now, we know they didn't always get it right. Many of us would be familiar with the incorrect comma when Jesus is speaking to the thief on the cross. And you can change the whole thing by moving that comma. Was Jesus saying... 
surely I say to you, comma, today you'll be with me in paradise. Is that what Jesus was saying? Or was he saying, surely I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. You see, the moving of that comma changes it. Well, here's another great example of where the comma changes everything. Look at it. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now watch. The comma suggests that there's a list for, number one, the perfecting of the saints. And number two, for the work of ministry. And number three, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Suggests there's a list. But let me show you something very interesting. That phrase takes on a totally different and actually the true meaning when you remove that comma. Let's see what happens when that comma disappears. Now we'll go to the New King James Version. And he himself, they got the comma correct. He himself gave some to be apostles, some were prophets, some were evangelists, some were pastors, and some were teachers. Again, a diversity, a variety of giftedness. Now watch this. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Do you see the difference? It's not for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. No, it's that God gave all of these gifts to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Ah, now the job of the teacher, the job of the preacher, the job of the pastor, the job of the apostle, the job of the prophet is to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ can be built up. The NIV gets it even better, and I'm not a big NIV fan, but they definitely get it better here. Look at this. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, and look at this, to prepare God's people for works of what? Service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The takeaway from the first part of Acts chapter 6 is that the ministries of the church are as diverse as its members. And the goal that the leadership of this church has from the pastoral team to the elders and everybody is that every single member of the church would be involved in some kind of ministry. You say, man, there's no way I'm going to get up front and preach. You don't have to get up front and preach. You say, there's no way I'm going to do whatever. That might not be your area of giftedness. It might not be your area of specialization. It might not be the talent that God has given to you. But clearly in the New Testament church, everybody made some contribution. Some were ears, some were noses, some were feet, some were hands, some were hearts, some were what? But everybody had a role to do. Everybody had a part to play. Can you say amen? And the job of the Jareds and the job of the Davids and the job of the Daniels and the job of the leaders of the church wasn't for them to do all the work. That's not what happened. When that complaint arose, they said, oh man, if, this, if anything's going to be done right around here, it's going to be done by us. We'll do it. We're the ones that spent time with Jesus. We're the theologians. No, 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 no. They trusted the church. They said, hey, you guys get together. This will be your ministry. Select seven people. We'll pray for them, and we're trusting you. They delegated. They trusted. They created systems so that the whole church could be involved in some ministry that was consistent with their talents and the unique gifts that God had committed to them. Amen? Okay, now let's just wrap this up. The last part of the story ends with the introduction of a guy named Stephen. And one of these deacons was a cut above. Man, this guy was a spirit-filled fireball. It says in verse 8, Then Stephen, one of the deacons, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Man, this guy was filled with the Spirit. Verse 9, Then there arose some from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen. They were Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia. And they started to argue with Stephen. Stephen's teaching, Stephen's preaching. He's not only serving, he's not only administrating, but he's teaching and preaching. 
And his preaching is of such a nature that people begin to take issue with him. Verse 11, then they secretly induced men to say, hey, we've heard him speak against blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him to the council. And they even set up false witnesses that said, quote, this man doesn't stop speaking about blasphemous words against this holy place and against the law. For we've even heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the, what does your Bible say? Change the customs or the traditions which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly, saw as it were the face of an angel. Now, as we close here, we've got to bring up something. The reason that Stephen was brought under controversy and the reason that he was charged and even false witnesses were raised up is that he was apparently taking issue with traditions and customs to which people had, had become associated. Hey, we, that's not the way our parents did it, Stephen. That's new. That's fresh. That's different, and we don't like it. And the reality is this. We are all creatures of habit. We are all creatures of habit. And here's a remarkable thing that happens. By the way, this is a well-documented phenomenon, sociological phenomenon. When you get groups of people together, their habits begin to coalesce into doing things a certain way, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a company, whether it's a not-for-profit, or whether it's a church. This is just the way that we do it. We sit in pews like that. We come to churches like this. We sing songs like this. This is the way we do it. And when somebody else comes in with a different way, a new way, another way, we can feel threatened and say, oh, look, who does this guy think he is? He's undermining the traditions. He's undermining our customs. He's doing it new. He's doing it different. But the question should not be, is it new? Is it different? It should be, is it better? Maybe what he's saying is an even better way, and I love this quotation from a, from a uh, well-known, probably the, the, the best modern church historian, he's passed away now, Lutheran church historian, his name is Yaroslav Pelikan, wrote a great five-volume series called The Development of Christian Doctrine, and I love this. He says, tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Now let me unpack that for you. What we call tradition, there's nothing wrong with tradition. All tradition is, is the way that they used to do it. For them, that was their faith. That was the living faith. Back in the day, they say, well, my grandfather did it this way, and my great-grandfather did it this way, and the church of 200 years ago, they did it like this, right? Well, no problem. That was their tradition. It was the living faith of the people at that time. But the danger comes in when we say, if it was good enough for them, it's automatically good enough for us. No, we have a better standard than traditionalism. Our standard is what Scripture says. This is our standard. Our standard is not the way it's always been done, and that's the way we've always done it, and that's the only way that works. The major complaint against Stephen was that he was innovative, that he was revolutionary, that he wanted to do church different, right? He started to preach a new message, and people said, well, this is, dis this is destabilizing. This makes us uncomfortable. This is not the way we've always done church. This seems, this seems to upset us. Beloved, we do there's nothing wrong with believing in traditions. But there's something very wrong with an elevating our traditions to the place of sacrosanct, where they're so holy, they're so immutable, they're so important that they cannot be violated. The moment we do that, now we're not just believing in tradition, we've become traditionalists. And we don't want to be traditionalists. We want to be followers of what Scripture actually says. And so if Scripture says A, we say A. If it says B, we say B. 
But where scripture is not express, where scripture is not explicit, the way that they did it may not be the way that's best for us. Times change, situations change, cultures change, people change, and woe unto us if we don't change with the times. The reality is, is that a great many of our churches are doing little more than speaking to themselves, among themselves, about themselves. But that's not the church of Acts. The church of Acts is a vibrant community-based... The, the church of Acts was in the community. It was out there. It was making a difference. It was a force to be reckoned with, not just a group of well-meaning, nice, pious people that met on Saturday morning in that building and basically spoke to themselves, among themselves, and about themselves. We want something more than that. We want something bigger than that. We want the church of Acts. And I tell you, man, Stephen, radical, getting right in the thick of it and preaching his hearts out even if it upset people, 